0: Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. I'm your host, Claire Holtz, and today's episode is one in our recovery series. Please keep in mind that these recovery series episodes may discuss difficult topics, and we ask that you use your discretion when listening or speak to a therapist or support system as needed. Today on this episode, we are joined by Sarah Churchward. Hi, Sarah.
1: Hi, guys.
0: How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty good.
0: So for our listeners, Sarah is a writer and professional makeup artist who lives in Washington. At the age of 17, she launched her own cosmetics line and started a blog called Thought Outlet, where she discusses various topics that she's passionate about. In February of 2018, Sarah ran into some health issues, which led her to take a hiatus from work and school. But before we dive into the health and recovery side of her story, I'm curious to know more about your experience as a makeup artist, Sarah.
1: Yeah, so I was 15 when I decided that I wanted to be a makeup artist. And it was funny because I was living away from home and I just kind of had this realization that I could be a makeup artist. Like I, I remember I was I was putting makeup on myself, and I was thinking, wow, I love this. I wish that I could just do this as a career. And then it just, like, occurred to me that I can. So that was really empowering. Um, and I, I just went, and I got some books, and I did some research and made a game plan and made it happen. And by the time I came home, back to Washington, I... I was able to get set up and start working with clients, and one of my favorite things about my job is that I um, I specialize in both, like, beauty makeup, so, like, you know, weddings and, like, photo shoots, that kind of stuff, but I also specialize in special effects makeup, so I have a huge passion for, like, working with haunted houses and, like, movie st- set stuff and just... I don't know, things like that, so it's fun, it's been fun to be able to do both um, throughout my career, so it never really gets boring. Do
0: you have a preference for which one you like better?
1: You know, I ask myself that question so often, and it I really don't, I really love both, it's cool to be able to, like, turn somebody into, like, a monster, if that's what they want, or, you know, a mermaid, or, <laughs> like, bring, bring different fears and, and nightmares and things alive, and also it's amazing to see people like, like their inner beauty on the outside and like have that come out. And I just love both.
0: So you talk about inner beauty, but I also know that oftentimes the fashion industry does contribute to distorted thinking and eating. So personally for your experience has working as a makeup artist in that industry affected your overall well being at all, or how you perceive body image and things like that.
1: You know, I, I know that the industry can definitely have a negative impact. And for me personally, I have been able to, like, see what I want for recovery because of my relationship with makeup and the fashion industry. And that might sound kind of strange, but I I was having this discussion with one of my dietitians a few weeks ago where we had just had – like a group meeting and it occurred to me that our jobs are really similar and I told her this and she was like I don't that doesn't make any sense and I was like it's not about what is right or wrong with makeup it's not about like what shade of lipstick do, does this person need or what's right or what's the undertone like all of those things are important and things that I know about and consider but like if you take a rule with makeup such as like don't put um like a liquid product on top of powder right like that's a really common rule." All Like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just figuring out what happens when you do that and knowing when to use that and, like, the context. And I just had this realization that, like, my relationship with makeup is the relationship I want to have with food and body, where it's, like, I love – everything about makeup every product every like technique because even if it doesn't look like what the standard of beauty might be for that day in that like particular city I'm gonna use that technique for zombie makeup later or (laughs) in two years when it comes back into fashion like it's just learning stuff you know
0: so you said you had this conversation with your dietician and I I did yeah so I know more about your story and the listeners know nothing Are you able to share with them your story to recovery?
1: Yeah. So um, I, oh, goodness, it's kind of complicated. I was 14 when I, um, yeah, it is kind of complicated. Okay. So like I was 14 when I really started using eating disorder symptoms um, and It was kind of a weird situation, like, I was being bullied by this person who was kind of, like, encouraging me to use eating disorder symptoms, Um, and I was also kind of encouraging myself as, you know, I'm not sure if it was for attention or if it was, like, as a form of self-harm or or what, what the intention was, but it was, like... this kind of, like, weird mixture of, like, me choosing it and not at the same time, and then that didn't, that didn't last very long, it lasted a couple months, and then I, I, like, just realized that, like, I didn't want that at all, and so I went through, quote-unquote, recovery by myself, and just kind of, like, decided to eat, again, which as anyone in recovery knows, that's not really how it works, so um, I, it's hard to say whether or not I reached true recovery by myself, I can say that when I, by the time I moved to Arizona, which is when I decided to be a makeup artist, I had this philosophy that I had come to that I just like felt so confident in, and it was eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. I was like wow I'm a genius like this is the best way to feel yourself and I felt great and when I got there and I was I was telling my aunt this and she you know is like a health and fitness coach and and I'm telling her and I'm like yeah I I really like I feel so great like I I just awesome and she kind of like nodded at the time and then a couple of weeks later we were in an argument and she she was like she has a very disordered relationship with food and body and i think that whether it was projecting or whether she was angry with herself or her situation or, or angry at me or whatever happened she, i just remember her like screaming at me like you cannot just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full or else you're going to gain weight and just like all this stuff and i just like i just felt like i broke And so from that point on, I really continued to kind of fall back into eating disorder behaviors and and thought patterns and stuff. And um, when I got diagnosed, which I know we're going to talk about in a little bit, I um, I started taking, I was prescribed stimulants to keep me awake. Um, And stimulants have a side effect of being an appetite suppressant. And so at that point um that combined with the really immense stress of being diagnosed and of the situation I was in just kind of snowballed into a lot worse (laughs) relationship with food and body and I um was you know I'm I was seeing doctors like a couple times a week anyways and I would tell them like I I'm not eating I can't like I just I want to but I can't And, and I would tell them and you know my doctor one of my doctors, he just, he looked at me, and he was like, well, it's fine, because you are still in this percentile, you could still lose, like, X amount of weight, so it's okay, and I just had, like, a breakdown in my therapist's office, where I was like, I, I am not, I, like, this isn't okay, this isn't okay, like, even if I am being honest with you guys about it, like, I need help, and so, you know, we, we called the Emily program together, and it, it took me a little bit, like a couple months to actually get into the program, but that's that's kind of like the road here.
0: (laughs) So you talk about being diagnosed, and you were diagnosed with a chronic illness. Which illness is that?
1: Yeah, so it's called narcolepsy with cataplexy, and um... (laughs) oh goodness, I... All right, so, so narcolepsy is something that most people have like heard of but don't really know anything about and um usually people tell me like oh that's where you fall asleep right um kind of it it actually is more there's five main symptoms there's sleep attacks which is like what you see in movies where people are falling asleep you know randomly and just in weird situations and that that is definitely part of it and then there's um special type of hallucinations there's nightmares there's this thing called automatic actions which is where I fall asleep for a few seconds or a few minutes but my eyes are still open and I continue what I'm doing but I don't do it very well because I'm asleep so like note-taking I'll just like start scribbling or like if I'm putting my keys and phone away I'll just like put them in the garbage instead of like on a table or something (laughs) um and then cataplexy is um cataplexy is kind of the big one it's is a um it's temporary muscle paralysis that is caused by strong emotion stimuli and like laughter so these yeah um most people with cataplexy don't have full body cataplexy attacks they'll just have like their arms or the legs will kind of go limp and um That is not the case for me. I have full body attacks where every muscle in my body is just completely limp, except for my eyes and my diaphragm, because I can still breathe. So that is lucky.
0: I imagine before you were officially diagnosed that you were having some of these symptoms still, correct?
1: Yes, I have had these symptoms for pretty much my whole life.
0: Okay, and then you've had them for forever. So then how did you finally come to the conclusion that you needed to see doctors and that it was something more going on and that led you to get that diagnosis?
1: Yeah, it's actually... It's it's such an interesting story, I guess, because it's something I've thought about a lot. Because what happened is I... You know, like I said, I've had these my whole life, but they have also been pretty mild my whole life. and also, And, and then, like, when I... In February, I was on a snowshoeing trip, and I had, like, a full-body cataplexy attack, and at the time, didn't know what it was or what was happening, and it triggered this, like, all of a sudden, like, my narcolepsy just had no bounds, like, I was having these attacks Every few minutes, every day, like it was, it was insane. I would be in restaurants and just, you know, the waiter would come by and I would be like passed out on the bench, and then I would be up, and then it like it's just, it was a lot. (laughs) And um, it took us a few months before I got diagnosed, and in that time, like not knowing what was going on is really scary. But as I have, you know, explored my diagnosis and learned about it and looked back at my life with this new information, some of the things that, like, stopped me from. Figuring it out is, for one, there's a real glamorization of being tired like in our culture and not just not just like adults competing to see who can overwork themselves the most like I'm talking about like t-shirts and mugs and stuff for kids like just I would be in elementary school and you'd have these kids and just be talking about like wow I'm so tired and then in middle school I'm more tired than you and it's just it's always like this competition of like oh well, wait till you get to high school and then you'll really be tired and I just thought it was normal to just be exhausted all the time. And, and I mean, when something happens to you every day for your whole life, I don't think that, I don't think you assume that it's <laughs> abnormal, you know? And one thing that's absolutely amazing and that I am so grateful to my body for is I remember I was, I was a kid and I, I knew that when I laughed that I was, I would fall down. And so I would just not laugh, and um, and I had, like, a silent laugh that I, it was very intentional, and I didn't know, like, it, it was subconscious, but, like, also a choice at the same time, and my, I feel like somehow my body just kind of knew that I wasn't ready to handle the pressure of this diagnosis, and, and really, like, kind of took it on for me, and like I have coping mechanisms that at this point they are really detrimental to my health but that really got me through childhood and allowed me to have a childhood such as like emotion suppression so that I don't feel an emotion strong enough to have a cataplexy or like constantly being very very physically tense because that's the opposite of cataplexy and so there's all these things that like I I didn't like, I didn't even know that I was doing until I had to stop doing them. But, yeah, that's, like, that's kind of why it took me several, <laughs> you know, 17 years to get diagnosed. But when my body was, like, it's, well, I can't do it by myself anymore, it, you know, I, I got diagnosed pretty quick, which is really lucky.
0: You have narcolepsy with cataplexy, correct? Yes. Okay, I didn't want to mix them around. <laughs> um, so I don't know anything about it other than like you've said what's on the media or what's in movies is it something that will be for the rest of your life does it get better at all are there medications what does that look like
1: this is where it gets kind of tricky because narcolepsy the cause isn't really known but there are two accepted known causes and one of them is head trauma and the other is a genetic marker called HLA um But the problem is that I don't have either. And so people really don't know why I have narcolepsy or what to do about it. There are medications to treat it. Um, The first treatment is usually like taking stimulants to keep you awake during the day. Um, And then the other treatment is um, the other medication is taking some special medications to help you it's not help you fall asleep, it's to help you have deep sleep at night, and so, um, those get kind of, like, complicated a little bit, so, um, but some other treatments are, like, taking scheduled naps throughout the day, and, um, You can work with like companies and with, you know, if you want to work freelance, whatever, like trying to have your work schedule be during the hours that you're most wakeful, which for me tends to be from like 10 a.m. to like 2 p.m. And then after that, like any other times, I'm kind of just out of it, (laughs) but um, there's there's things you can do, but it is a chronic illness without a cure.
0: Okay, and you also had an eating disorder. Did you have the eating disorder before you were formally diagnosed with narcolepsy, or did it come after the diagnosis?
1: Yeah, that is such an interesting question. Um, Both. I had an eating disorder before I was diagnosed, and my eating disorder got significantly worse after I was diagnosed. And it also is a little bit, there's some kind of like mixed opinions because the brain hormone that I don't have um and me not having it is like responsible for having narcolepsy it also is a like contributor in appetite so there is some question about whether I have the actual like brain function to not have an eating disorder and I don't have an answer about that but I will say that like getting diagnosed significantly increased my symptom use and my and decreased like my relationship with food and body
0: why is that
1: i think there's lots of reasons um for one it's incredibly stressful to be diagnosed with something like this um to just try to figure out what i'm gonna do and to feel like like i got diagnosed right before my 18th birthday and and for me to i i I was really excited to turn 18 and really excited to do a lot of things that were important to me. And instead I spent that time like contemplating, do I file for disability? Do I, am I going to live with my parents forever? What am I going to do like that in and of itself is just an incredibly stressful situation. And also, you know, like I said, with the stimulants, like that plays a part. And then there's um, like what I like to call functional body dysmorphia, which uh, I wrote about, (laughs) It's this idea of how do you trust and love and value your body when it feels like it doesn't do that for you? You know? So, those are, yeah, those are some of the reasons that, yeah.
0: How do you feel about your body today?
1: Well, my body is perfect the way it is. Okay realistically, like, I, you know, obviously we could talk about, like, perfection and what does that mean and all of that, but realistically, where I'm at is, yeah, I I don't have hypocritin. I do not know how to sleep. My body doesn't know how to do that, and also, I don't know that I would be happier if it did, and that doesn't mean that I don't wish that I didn't have narcolepsy. There are definitely times and anyone with a chronic illness has the right to Wish that they didn't have it or be okay with it. Like, I think that that is such a personal relationship. But I will say that, like, I can do so much with narcolepsy. And I feel like if anyone could handle it, I could handle it. And I just, I really believe that, like, God has a plan, you know? And I don't know, I does that make sense? That, like, yeah, I. It is hard when I'm having cataplexy and it is hard when I wish that I could be driving myself places and when I want to be doing what I thought I'd be doing. That's not easy. But also, I would never know anything about narcolepsy if I wasn't diagnosed. Nobody like nobody, knows anything about it. Like, <laughs> it's something you see in movies. And I would never have realized this hugely untapped community that needs help. Like, these, like people with narcolepsy, like we we, like, it's a struggle, and it's something that isn't talked about, and sleep health in general is something that isn't talked about, like, you know, we talk about good sleep hygiene, but it's so much more than that, like, the amount of things that, like, being sleep-deprived affects in your body, I know that very intimately, and I'm very passionate about sleep for everyone, and how important it is for your mental health, and your physical health, and relationships, and growth, like, childhood development, like, I would never have known, if I
0: didn't have this, you know, do you feel like eating disorder treatment improved um, how you felt also about your chronic illness?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think it was really it's, it's funny, I wrote in my journal one day that I wanted to do a BCA, which is behavior chain analysis, for anyone who doesn't know, about cataplexy, because that is how I viewed it, I viewed it as like a behavior that I wanted to reduce, and it wasn't until I sat down and did the BCA, and like wrote out like, oh, what are, you know, what are the vulnerability, and what is this, and what, what's the different choice I could make that I realized, that I was looking at cataplexy and my chronic illness as a choice and I was looking at it as like something I was doing wrong whereas like I would beat myself up about it I'd be like well why am I choosing to have cataplexy again why didn't I just not why didn't I you know do this better like I need to just (laughs) figure out a way to make a different choice and I think by doing that and by really like realizing what I saw in myself when I had cataplexy I wouldn't, I don't, I don't, I can't say I wouldn't have, but I, I don't know when or if I would have like realized that about myself without eating disorder treatment.
0: You've learned a lot, obviously, about dealing with um, both eating disorder recovery and living with a chronic illness and coping with that, but being diagnosed initially, I imagine was really tough. Do you have any words of advice or encouragement to other people that have been recently diagnosed with chronic illness?
1: You know, (laughs) I've thought a lot about this, and I would say the best thing that you can do is find information, because whether you're getting diagnosed with something that is common or rare or terminal or, you know, like, whatever it is, the more that you know about your illness and the more that you know about yourself... The better you'll be able to self-advocate, the more, like, resources you will find, and, the, like, you'll be able to communicate with people and say, this is what I have, this is why it's happening, and this is what I need. And knowledge is such power and it's such an important tool. I think that that is probably the most important thing when getting diagnosed.
0: On a similar idea before we wrap up this episode, what would you tell people in eating disorder recovery?
1: Well, as someone who is still in re- and eating disorder recovery, um, I would say that what really, really keeps me holding on is faith. And whether you take that in a religious way or not, I choose to believe that faith is the perfect balance in between hope and trust. Trust in yourself and in your providers and in the possibility of recovery no matter your circumstances, and hope in being happier. And that doesn't mean that happiness is a state of being because it's not, but being in a state of being where you can be happy. And I think that that's what I would tell people is that it takes faith and that faith is not easy and does not make things easy, but it does make things possible.
0: That's great advice. And just before I do the outro spiel for this episode, is there any place that we can find you? I know you have a blog. Is that still up and running?
1: Yes, it is. I don't post super often right now, but it's, you know, I am in treatment. I'm kind of like overwhelmed a little bit, but there will be... There will be, there's stuff in the works. Um, and I also have an Instagram, which is psycho but cute with underscores and psycho is with a zero instead of an O. Um, don't ask me why it's that. I made it <laughs> when I was like 13. Um, <laughs> and yeah, other than that, I, yeah, I, um, that's all that I really give out. So,
0: Well, thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for
0: having me. Piecemeal is an Emily Program podcast with new episodes out the first Monday of every month and the third Wednesday. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Emily Program, or you can visit us on the web at emilyprogram.com. Piecemeal is hosted by myself, Claire Holtz, edited by myself and Nancy Linden, with music by Dan Forkey.